Uh, Daniel Brown on my right is a member of the basketball team. As you see, he's got his GSU sweats on. But actually, Daniel is uh, here not as a basketball player, but as a really good student of mine who's trying to figure out his career. Figure out whether you really like something or not. You may think you like something, but you don't really like it. But because it's glamorous, you might think that's something I want to do. Three quarters of people who go to law school regret going. Why? Because it's very expensive in time and money. Number two, only one third to one fifth of the students get really good jobs. Okay? How many of them pass the bar? They pass the bar, but they don't find a job in law. Even Georgia State Law School, which is a good law school, three quarters of the people get any job in any field. It's it's the sort of thing you don't know, you gotta find out if you want to do your homework, right? I was just saying to Daniel on the way upstairs, a lot of people think they want to be basketball players. And they convince themselves they want to be basketball players, but they don't really want to be basketball players. If they really want to be basketball players, that's what they'd be playing. Practicing, practicing that jump shot. The guys that do that can make that leap to the next level while they're in college. The guys that don't do that, and gals for that matter, you know, they're, they're just they're a little bit bigger and stronger than they were in high school, and a little bit faster and a little bit smarter, but they don't make that, that next level, you know? And the difference between high school, you can be a star in your high school team, and you come to your college team, and everybody's a star, right? I, I didn't play football, but I know in my, um, <laughs> I'm so old that they used to have freshman football teams. Freshman everything, in fact, and where I went to college, out of 60 guys in the freshman football team, 40 of them were their high school captain. And that's back in the days when there was one captain, none of this four captain stuff. So, and that's a, a rinky-dink Ivy League school that, you know, terrible in football. So it, it shows you that it pays to start learning about this kind of stuff. So, Daniel, why don't you just talk about what you're thinking about doing. You can stand up here a little bit and feel free to intervie intervie interview him or ask him a question about how he's thinking about stuff. Uh, exactly what um, like, uh, Professor said. Um, I myself am contemplating whether I should go to law school or get involved with uh, international law. And uh, something I've been giving a lot of thought about because uh, right now I'm a graduating senior and I recognized probably last year the importance of getting an internship. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get one last semester. Oh, I'm sorry, last, last year, the spring semester at the Israeli consulate. And it was a good experience for me. Did you hear what he said? He got an internship at the Israeli consulate. I have two students now who, who are not Jewish who got internships at the Israeli consulate. That's a really good example of the many kind of internships you can get in Atlanta. It'll really help your experience, really help your resume, help you understand what you like doing, what you don't like doing. Remember, a bad internship tells you something very important. I don't want to do this. And if you can eliminate stuff, then you can focus on the things you think you might like better. It was uh, a. Can you repeat uh, the name of that institution again? Uh, Israel, the is the Consulate General of Israel. Israel. Yeah. And they're stationed uh, in Midtown by Georgia Tech. Uh, it was a great experience for me because I got a chance to meet a lot of uh, foreign diplomats. I got a chance to uh, see, you know, work in the workspace, uh, the work field of just doing a lot of office work. Got a chance to meet uh, Kasim Reed. He spoke at Israel's, uh, Israel's uh, Independence Day. And so it just gave me a chance to get out and just understand exactly what I wanted to do in the realm of political science and things of that nature. And I wanted Professor's expertise, well, his uh, 
you know, his his understanding of foreign, you know, foreign work and foreign law, I wanted to understand if I should pursue you know, <coughs> UN work or human rights work or try to stick with strictly American law. Um, or play basketball. Or continue to try to play because my brother plays professional basketball and I wanted to probably follow his route. So I had to kind of assess my options and see exactly what I wanted to do. And that's what we were having a conversation about on our way over here. And just wanted to talk to you guys about the, just the importance of right now of, I know some of you probably older than I am, or, you know, probably smarter than I am, they are <coughs> contemplating getting Don't a, sell yourself short. Uh, uh, He's a very good, very smart fellow. Um, of getting an internship and, and just developing that experience right now, especially if you're a, a, a um, you know, freshman or a sophomore, you want to use this time wisely just to, because when you don't want to wait till you're a junior or a senior trying to get your first internship because it can be very difficult and, you know, just competing with other students. Um, but as far as, uh, that's pretty much it as far as uh, my experience goes. Um, I'm a graduating senior. Um, I have a year left of eligibility and I'm thinking about grad school. And so if I, you know, trying to figure out right now what I want to get my master's in, whether I'm going to do international law or should I drop it all together and just pursue law school. But I do uh, like law, so that was one of the areas that I was interested in and wanted to continue to pursue. But Have you thought about playing ball in Europe? Is that where yeah. your brother plays, or does he play in the States? Yeah, where, right this year he's playing in uh, Saudi Arabia. He's played in various countries, uh, Dubai, Brazil. I saw his brother play, and he was quite yeah. a good player. And, and yeah. A lot of the Georgia State basketball players make six figures right out of school playing ball overseas. We've had two guys who almost made it the NBA. Yeah, and it's, it's just as difficult as it is to, to make it in the, the field of law. It's just as difficult as to make it in athletics. Um, the people see the glamour in athletics, especially when you're getting paid, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. You can make, you know, nine, ten thousand dollars a month trying to play professionally somewhere. Or, you know, everyone knows how difficult it is to try to make it in the NBA. But did you say you was a political science major? Yeah, I'm a political science major. And uh, I began my undergrad this semester, or finishing this semester. If you do go into law, what do you want to specialize in? What, what area of law do you want to focus on? That's what, that's what we were discussing. Uh, we, we said we continue the conversation. And one of the points of internships, aside from getting experience and qualifications, is if you try something out in the law firm or in a district attorney's <coughs> office, in the case of criminal law, let's say, you say, you know, I really hate being around murderers. Or I really feel great that I'm helping the justice system keep these dangerous people off the street, or whatever it is. Or you work in a law firm and they say, I hate this. I thought law was Perry Mason and LA law and fighting in court. None of these guys go to court. Because 99% of the lawyers never walk into a court their whole career because you don't realize from TV that most lawyers just write papers and do legal research. They never be, even appear in front of a judge unless they got a traffic citation. 99% of lawyers almost, well, 95% of lawyers never <coughs> practice law as a lawyer, not as a client in court. At least 95%. Out of the I mean, of the litigation, if you take the number of people who litigate out of the Bar Association, I'm sure it's less than 1%, as they specialize in litigation. Um, before you got your internship, internship, like what type of qualifications did you need to go in? Were you just like a student and as a 
Well, I did a lot of uh, networking. Um, but secondly, you need to make sure you have a, a good GPA. You want to be in good standing, at least um, a 3.0. That definitely looks better. I mean, you can have you can have a 2.5, but if you're going to be competing with somebody who has a 3.5, then of course that that'll cancel you out right there. But just that, and you the base the basic skills because when you're beginning your internship, the, your employer knows that okay, this is your first time going around. You're gonna, you're gonna you have to start somewhere. That has to be your your beginning, and so they understand that. But it, it wasn't too hard. Getting it. it was a lot of competition, but Thankfully, I was able to win out. I was going to ask the Israeli consulate, was there a particular position or official whose job you saw and you said you could sort of imagine yourself doing that? Um, not specifically at the, the right. consulate where I worked because there was a lot of office work that was going on there. Sure. But they just, the, the consulate, it's a, it was a fun place to let me to see the international view because we were working with a lot of like diplomats from different countries and seeing just me, you know, seeing different cultures and and just seeing how they work, but not particularly. Our speaker came courtesy of Israeli consulate. Yeah, and so, but not particularly in the consulate. No. It just, it kind of opened my eyes to the international realm of, of law that I could be But a consulate here will take business delegations, government officials, speakers. You may have no interest in Israel, but you could learn how a foreign country who's a developed, almost developed country deals with the United States. And you can see the United, the United States deals with that. You also see the whole business about visas. Right. You'd be surprised who, who's uh, a UN diplomat or represents a specific country because I had, I had the opportunity, I met uh, Andrew Young, you know, he used to be the, sure. the mayor of Atlanta here. And uh, he, he spoke at uh, one of the schools that I, I used to go to. And he, you know, I didn't get a chance to talk to him very long, but he was someone who was in that field. Is that? His name on the building. Mm -hmm. and he was Carter's Secretary of State. And he got fired. No, his, his ambassador of the UN. He got fired oh, for having right. secret meetings with the PLO, Palestinian organization. Do you think your brother's uh, experience and networking and uh, position in, in professional basketball will open the door for you or more so give you a better chance to play professional basketball? Or at least give you a chance, like a probational period, or you know they'll look at you in good terms. You, yeah. you feel good about that? Yeah, I feel good about that. Um, also, I have a, a twin brother who, who plays college basketball. Really plays for Clark Atlanta, and so we often we often talk about probably both going playing professionally and talking with my my brother. He has a busy schedule, and so the time frame is kind of switched. He's like seven hours ahead of us. So when I do get a chance to talk to him, um, you know, just talking with his agent and things like that. So he, he his success um, not only you know, been playing there, but also used to play here at State before he went over to play professionally. Definitely has opened up the door because it, the people who saw him play but are, are able to see me and my brother play. And, um, you know, it just, it's just, a, a, he, he kind of set the trail, so to speak. Your dad played basketball? My dad, no, nah, my dad didn't play basketball. I was just having to be tall. My dad, he ran track. <laughs> <laughs> That's where your speed comes from? Yeah, I guess, something like that, but yeah. Was that the only internship you did, or are you looking at? I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at getting another one, probably either later this semester, because I know, even though it's still February, they have a couple that are open. But that was my that was my first one, because that was the first one I pursued. I would say take try to get two internships before you get out of here, mm -hmm. because you get access to, to places that won't look at you until you have that experience. Yeah. If you don't have references from doing an internship. You don't. You can't compete with the other college graduates. 
unfortunately, as I was saying to Daniel, I said, you want to go to law school? How competitive is it to start in, vars in varsity basketball in college? It's just as hard to get into law school. Maybe it's not quite as hard, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's not uncompetitive. So you've got to give them something extra because they got 100 resumes, 200 resumes. And not to cut you off, but just, I know a lot of times, I'm going to get to your question, but a lot of times I know people see unpaid internships and they think, okay, well, I'm not going to do this. Of course, we all want to get paid when we do our internships, but just take the opportunity, even especially if it's your first one, go ahead and get that unpaid internship out of the way because you never know that can open up an avenue when you work there to meet somebody else and you can go on and get you know, start a cycle. But, um, and then even volunteer work, if you can volunteer and try to get in, because I know they have a set number of <coughs> spots. If you don't meet one of those criteria to make those spots, then still try to do some volunteer work. It'll look good on your resume and also give you a chance to, you know, meet other people. Oh, it was kind of, uh, because you said you need like two internships. But that's a recommendation. Well, yeah, but what, what if you're in a position, uh, like, I don't know what I want to do that's exactly the reason to do an internship. No, well, but I mean, you just pick, just pick. What area? Area. Like, okay, what, what's your major? Uh, that's what I'm saying. I'm undecided. What year? Are you what year? In politics? I mean, I know about politics. I'm not really interested in doing anything past, you know, college. What, what year are you? I'm a freshman. Oh, man, you got to talk about you. If you was a junior or a senior, I hope nobody here is a junior or senior. Let me, just, <laughs> let me just finish. Okay, you're a freshman. You're a little bit, this is really more of a sophomore course. Yeah. So by sophomore year, don't panic, okay? But by next year, you got, time is passing by, right? There's something that interests you, whether it's sports or marketing. Or something it only takes like. one interest, something that you can dedicate your life to, at least for now. And the thing about an internship is, you know, you can, I find internships because they don't have to pay you, but you're getting college credit for it. And you're getting, credit that's worth more than a typical course because instead of knowledge from books, what you're getting is this is what I, Sam Brown, or whatever your name is, this is what Sam enjoyed or didn't enjoy. You got to try your best no matter what it is. But I tried my best and I hated it. Or I tried my best, excuse me, I loved it. Or I tried my best and it was so-so. But I find I don't like an office job. I found that I love an office job. I found I'm a per people person. I found out I'm much better sitting in the library like a lawyer and just doing legal research. Yes. Yeah, See, just, when you've been a student me. your whole life and you've had a few summer jobs maybe, <coughs> but you know now you're looking at the level of professional jobs because you go to college basically to either get a professional job or an academic job. Like a and this overlap, like a high school teacher would be like a kind of professional job too. Yeah. And you want to try these things out, and you need to get experience on your resume so that you're competitive when you get out here. And it's a way of making a contribution. And maybe the only time in your life when you can work for an NGO as a volunteer and feel good. I just did this. I just did this because I wanted to help some people. Refugees, the, the people with cancer, whatever it is, helping clean up a school area, helping clean up a park. Uh, I just wanted to make to have that experience because I probably just spent all my life being a millionaire. But until in the meantime, you know, I'd like to do something before I get rich. <laughs> I love what y'all two are trying to do with this because um, I work for Starbucks and 
there are like three different types of people who work at Starbucks, um, people who need interns, and then there are students, and then there are a lot of college graduates who work at Starbucks. So the last thing I want to do is pay all this money and work hard and get a degree and then work at Starbucks until I'm done. So um, and to help the gentleman in the back who was asking about how to like pursue that, if you go to the bottom floor of the university center, they have all sorts of like programs to help you decide and pick an avenue to go to. Like I, I did one of those and there's also websites, contact information of like CEOs and people in all different levels of positions in all different types of companies that you can actually get their phone number off these websites and call them and start to network and ask questions about what they're doing. So if you do need some direction, you can always go to the bottom floor of the university center. I can place you at the ACLU of Georgia, Amnesty International Care, Carter Center, International Rescue Committee, Refugee Resettlement Agencies, because my specialty is human rights and non-governmental organizations. But like the young lady said, you can go work for a company, you can go work for the bank, you can work anywhere, you work in a law firm. You, everybody, if you don't know somebody, you know somebody who knows somebody. Ask for informational interviews. Just say, can I just spend 10 minutes of your time, they'll probably give you half an hour, to ask you questions about your profession. I'm interested in learning. And then they'll, they'll refer you to people who you'd never get to meet just because you had the gumption to make a, write a letter or ask a phone call or ask somebody for a recommendation, use their name to get through the door. And these skills that you're describing, networking, is the number one most important job search skill. And it takes a gumption until you, or it, it, until you know that's what's required, you just think, oh, I go through the classified ads. Classified ads are for people who have a lot of experience or they're unskilled jobs. You don't want an unskilled job right now. You want to get into the professional ranks. So then, therefore, you don't have enough experience to, to qualify for a professional job that requires 10 years experience or five years experience in something very specialized. You're going entry level professional. And the way to get to entry level professional is through networking. And I'm not talking about social media on Facebook. Maybe it works differently now, but at least in my day, and I think still, you gotta get referred by somebody. And you know, I know people, your aunt and uncle and your mom and dad know people. <laughs> I know people who know people. Half the people, you can make up the name. Say, Joe Smith told me to call. Joe Smith, Joe Smith. The next thing you know, oh yeah, come on to my office. We'll talk for 10 minutes. Oh, you're interested in marketing films. I know, hey Joe, will you see this person? That's how you get a job. That's how you get a job. I made the mistake of writing letters to all these banks when I graduated from college, and I got a form letter rejection from 150 banks. And I graduated from Yale. Because that's not how you get a job. You get a job because somebody's going to make a job, or has already made a job, and you're at the right place at the right time. In other words, you got to be lucky, but you got to be good to be lucky, right? Guy takes a shot at a buzzer beater, goes up, hits the front rim, goes way up in the air, boom, Georgia State loses again. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to be good to take the shot. 
you gotta you gotta get the shot off before the buzzer goes off. Yeah. And you got you're double teamed, and you're falling backwards, but the guy still got the shot off, right? He was lucky, but you still gotta be good to be lucky, right? So you gotta get yourself in a position <laughs> where you're at the right place at the right time, and you're not gonna be in the right place at the right time in order to be lucky. One out of ten times, it only takes one. Right? It only takes one. But you know if that's the field that you want, you've got to get yourself in a position so you're at the right place at the right time to hit that buzzer beater. Because unless you get open and you can shoot over two guys, you still got to be lucky. But unless you can get open, get the pass, and get the shot off with two guys in your face, the ball's not going to go in even towards the net. You just got to love this sports analogy. <laughs> I, I just have one other thing. My, my first degree is in accounting. Mm -hmm. And in the 14 years I worked after college, um, I think I probably did maybe about six months, seven months of actual pure accounting work. Everything else has been in some other type of position, some other type of agency, some other work where I had to understand finance. I had to understand how to think. So don't necessarily be too worried about tying down your major. Do something you like and do something that you're good at. And then, then you can take that and you can go on from there. So, I mean, if you like basketball and you're good at basketball, stick with that. Yeah. You know, go with that. Because that, if that's your passion, that's what, that's what you will always put your heart into. Whereas, you know, if you get into law school and you get a degree, like you said, you know, it's, you know, it may not be your passion. It's just, you know, a nice certificate to hang on the wall. Yeah, that's true. I found that out working in my internship that I didn't like being behind the computer too long. I like to get out, I like to talk to people, I like to, you know, do those type of things. I don't want to just sit in the office for eight hours a day, you know, and then come home and then that's that's my job. So I didn't want I didn't want to do that. I found that out doing my internship, but I never would have known that if I didn't go get my internship, you know, because I just got tired of sitting there saying that. Because my job was mostly to research this, you know, move, you know, information in and out of the database and the contact information and things of that nature. And I found, I was like, man, I, this is okay, but it's not what I really want to do. And so, you know, some of you might think you like something now, but, you know, and you might, you, you might, your internship might confirm what you like or it might, you know, be the opposite, so. But that's important information. At the same time, you have to be realistic. Every entry-level job, if not every job in the world, has mo moments of sheer boredom and agony. So just because you experience moments of agony or torture, that's life. Know what I mean? Life ain't easy. It wasn't worth the call. That's another way to put it. Your question? Is there like a reason why you're leaving towards law school as opposed to um, like getting a PhD? Because like my major is the same like political science with a concentration in international affairs, but I'm still at the point where I don't know if I want to go get my JD or if I want to go get a PhD or if I want to do both. Mm -hmm. if I have a yeah, you do. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I was just undecided. I didn't want to go down one avenue, and you know, with blinders on and not understanding if I wanted, if I like this side better. And because you know he's a, a smart professor, and he can help me out in that area. That's why I kind of went to him and asked him for some some understanding on the international side, as opposed to just doing strictly American law, going to Georgia State University Law School or John Marshall Law School or whatever it was. And also, you know, law school like that, like Professor said, is extremely expensive, and so. If I go down that road and, and then once I graduate, I don't get a job, then of course, you know, it's not a waste, but you kind of feel like, you know, so I didn't want to, I wanted to keep myself from that. And by the way, internships 
not always, but often lead to jobs. You get to know people, either they give you a job or create one, or they know somebody who's got a job and they recommend you, and that's all the other guy wants to know. Yeah. Yeah. I think he had a question. Yeah, um, I don't, this is my first semester here. I've transferred, but no, at my previous school, they had a class that was internship. Is that how it works here, or can you get internship by getting an intern and then just, I guess, getting some documents? You have to prove it the first week of classes. Oh, okay. And you, you got to get an advisor and get a tar department approval. Yeah. It's best to pick the department that you think you're going to major in. <coughs> yeah, but if you get a professor who says, like me, you may not be a political science major, but you might want to work at the ACLU or the Amnesty International or any of those others I've mentioned, Catholic Relief, CARE. So you could do an internship with me, ask your major department, would you accept this for credit, even though the supervisor is in political science? If they say yes, you're fine. They say no, you still get the three hours, okay. but just won't count towards your major. Yeah, so pick one that goes towards your major. Yeah, man, I was just going to say, uh, as somebody mentioned earlier, I think you should follow your passion as well. Because um, my, my, my parents were pretty, I guess, were pretty savvy, and they graduated from decent schools and, and uh, accomplished high positions and stuff like that. And they always told me, they were like, don't worry about money. Don't be like, I don't want to go to law school because of the money. Like as much as, as, as cliche as it sounds, I know as hard as it is for some people to afford different things, if you want to do law, you'll be good at it. And when you're good at something, money becomes a trophy. It's going to come regardless. Don't stop what you're going to do because of money. My mom would always say when I'd be in the grocery store, she'd be like, don't look at the prices. Just get what you want. And then when you get ready to check out, if it becomes too pricey, we'll start putting stuff back. But initially, I want you to choose what you want. Don't don't be so concerned about the cost. People are always limited by, and I know people's situations are different, but you know it just saddens me. You must live in Buckhead. But you know, you you underachieve. Yeah, it's I see your point. I'm not no, I'm just joking. Man. It's not. I mean, you have a very expensive school as well, and. Uh, but the secret is actually Ivy League schools. If your parents make under sixty, you go for free. What? I probably you got to get in. Right. You can go to Phillips Exeter Academy or Andover, which are prep schools for high school. If your parents make less than sixty, you go for free. Collectively, or collectively. Uh, the average income in the United States per family is 50 grand, up from 40. Gross? The average, yeah. It's more than I make. Um, but yeah, that was, that was basically just the gist of our conversation, gist of the topic for today. And uh, I'll be helping making a decision pretty soon. I mean, I would, I would slightly disagree with you, but with respect. Fair enough. Um, and maybe just because I'm always broke, <laughs> I would say you better really want to be a lawyer and and know what's the what what it is to be a lawyer, and then don't worry about the cost of it. Right. Because most people go to law school, go there because they can't figure out what they want to do. They go to law school 
because they can't think of anything else to do, but they're good enough to get in. And then they hate it. And you look at the so surveys of lawyers, 68% of lawyers hate, hate being a lawyer. They like the money, they like the status, and if they're in a corporate law firm, they're making six figures, some of them seven figures occasionally. But if you also look at the figures, the number of law school grads who end up with nothing but debt when they graduate. Now it becomes a vicious cycle. They don't like it, so they don't study that hard. So they get lousy grades, so they don't get the offers. Because you gotta be, to get a corporate law job from Georgia State, you must be on the law review basically top 10 to 20 percent. And basically it's your grades your first year of law school. If you go to law school, I say suspend judgment for a year, just get high grades. <coughs> the beauty of law school is you don't have to be a lawyer. It's, it's not a bad degree to have in business or other professions. I remember when I first came down here in 98, what was the name of that movie? Um, with uh, the guy who's the sports agent, the guy's a Scientologist. Tom, uh, Tom Swift. Tom. Show me the Jerry Maguire. Tom Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire. My whole class, I asked, did an exit poll as I left. Every male in that room said they wanted to be a sports agent. And I said to them, for you to be a sports agent, first you got to go to law school. Second, you got to have clients. One of my best friends from college, he wanted to be a sports agent. There's only one problem. He didn't have any athletes. End of career. So, you know, you could be the best sports agent in the world, but if you don't have clients, just like if you don't have customers in a business, you're out of it. And you know the old saying, you can't make chicken salad out of chicken, you know what? <laughs> you know, you gotta be honest with yourself. If you got a 2.8 and you're the bottom 20%, you're not gonna go to a good law school. So if you don't have high grades, just forget about law school or med school. If you do have the grades, you still need to do your homework. You still need to think, do I wanna do this? If you don't know, but you think you might wanna do it, get an internship. Find out firsthand, because reading about it and experience it are two different things. Reading about it helps. But typically what you do is you read, you see LA Law, or you read one of those Scott Thoreau novels. And you know what? That's the most dramatic, exciting thing. And it's totally unrepresentative of the day-to-day -day existence of a lawyer, which is you get to the, your office, you bill 2,000 billable hours a year, which means you work 2,800 hours a year in order to bill clients for 2,000 hours a year. Do the math. 2,000 hours a year with two weeks vacation only is 50 hours a week? I think so. Oh no, it's 40 so hours a week. But that's 40 billable. So when you go to the bathroom, you can't bill those minutes. When you go out for lunch, you can't bill those minutes. So you gotta basically work 60 hours to bill 40. And that's the minimum number of hours you gotta bill to be a corporate lawyer. So yeah, you get, you start at 190,000 plus bonus if you graduate from a top 10 law school and you're on the law review. You go to Georgia State, you're not on a top 10 law school. So you're not gonna make 190 to start. 
Maybe two people from Georgia State Law School get to go to King and Spaulding, which is the top law firm in Atlanta. <coughs> and there are a couple of other key law firms. But you know, if you go to Emory and you're in the law review, you might get one of those jobs. But if you're in the middle of the bottom of your class in Emory, you're not. And you know, there are other factors, like you, know, you hit it off with the guy or woman that interviews you, or you don't. And there's things like racism still going on out there. It's not as bad as it used to be. Clarence Thomas is an interesting character, but he graduated from Yale Law School, the hardest law school in the country, where Bill and Hillary met, among other places. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. Um, for the first time, that is, in the library. Um, and Clarence Thomas didn't get a job offer. Justice O'Connor, first woman Supreme Court Justice in the United States of America, graduated with William Rehnquist, who was the Chief Justice. When she graduated, she finished in her class higher than him. She was like second in Stanford Law School, and Rehnquist was sixth in Stanford Law School. That's, that's really impressive. Even sixth is very impressive. Stanford is almost as hard to get into as Yale Law School. He got job officers. She got offers as a legal secretary. She, in the end, she made it to the US Supreme Court, and she was the swing vote for, she got appointed in the early 80s, and she retired about five years ago. So for 25 years, she was the most powerful judge in America because she had the deciding vote on any close decision. But for the first couple of years of her life, they wouldn't hire her. And she was first or second in her class at Stanford Law School. So things aren't quite that bad anymore if you're a minority or a female. But it's not entirely <coughs> disappeared either. Um, so the, 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 those things at play, there's luck, there's bad luck, there's good luck. But what you can control yourself is doing your homework and networking. And now I'm going to turn to Daniel and we're going to have a conversation. You can listen to us talk about my advice to him because he agreed in advance. Yeah. You still okay? Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> uh, so you're going to hear how I would go about helping him try to figure out law school versus, well, we decided he should do an internship because he really needs two. Mm. He's had one really good one. But the question is, you want to get an internship now that will really tell you, do I really want to do this or that? So my advice to you would be, do you want to get an internship in a law firm or do you want to get an internship at Amnesty International? Amnesty International will answer your question, do I want to work for a human rights NGO? I'll never be rich, but I'll be fighting for justice. And that's a very competitive field too, but I know I can make it because I know I'm interested, but do, do I really love it? See, a lot of people at internship, at, at entry-level jobs, you think you want to do something, you believe it, you may even feel it but you don't know it. And the only way to really know is to go into an entry-level job which has a lot of <coughs> grunt work, and then you say, in spite of the grunt work, I actually love this, and I look forward to going into that office. Now, it's not all grunt, it's a lousy internship, it's nothing but grunt work, clerking and filing papers and stuff. But, uh, my advice is uh, to Daniel, you tell me which of those two directions you think you you think you love? You don't know you love till you try it. 
It's like a girlfriend or boyfriend, right? You might be attracted, but then you say, <laughs> 10 years down the road, you ain't the same person. Neither are you. Okay, so um, what, which do you think you probably would love the more? Um, I probably should just uh, skip it all, go straight to the NBA. I think that would be the best. Okay, well, no, assume a can opener. No. Uh, I'll, right I, I'm sorry, Daniel. I hate to tell you this. Yeah. You're not NBA material. No, I, I hope I don't hurt your feelings when I say that. No, I kind of knew that. I kind of knew that. But no, uh, I'm, I'm leaning toward right now, I would like to get an internship with Amnesty International because that could tell me uh, what exactly, if I do want to work with the NGOs or not. Because the Israeli consulate gave me just a just a taste of working. Okay, and here's another thing. He, can, he said he'd like oh. to go to Amnesty International because okay. he thinks he's leaning towards human rights advocacy yeah. and monitoring. Yeah. The problem is, as I told you a little bit earlier, some internships they give you more responsibility than others. Amnesty is in Atlanta, which is monitors violations in the U.S. is a place where they have so many interns that they make you do grunt work for three weeks before you get to do something interesting in order to find out who's really dedicated, who will do it just because they're helping Amnesty International in their mission. The ACLU, where I have a, a current intern, he's a lost boy from Sudan, Abraham Dung, who's done a really good job. He's got all the responsibility in the world, but he can't, that's pressure too. He's in charge of reaching out to the refugee community and setting up seminars, telling them what people's their rights are. He's in charge of going to uh, immigration hearings and finding out people who have a, a legitimate claim of asylum and getting them lawyers. He does research on the countries to find out how they can link his the possible deportation of these countries with the claim for political asylum and so forth. That's as an intern. That's as an intern. Why? Because there are a lot of NGOs out there that don't have 25 interns. They're lucky if they get one. This is another thing about networking. You find out who really needs help. And you have a much better experience in a less famous place helping an organization that's understaffed than another organization where everybody's heard of it, so everybody wants to be an intern there. And they, don't, they have too many people for the amount of work that they have to give you right away. So you've got to prove your salt. You've got to prove your stuff to say that you're reliable, responsible, on time, and you do high quality work. Can you throw You'll find out the first day at the ACLU whether you're high quality or not because they give you your first assignment. It's a baptism by fire. You know that expression? Yeah. That's what, and that's, that's the plus side. You won't be bored. You'll find out very fast whether you're cut out for that. Obviously, you get, there's a learning curve. They don't expect you to be a superstar from day one. But uh, my friend Bill Hoffman at King & Spaulding says, we know, we give them seven years. We know after the first or second, certainly by the second assignment, whether they're going to make partner or not. Because basically, you have to be good at working by yourself and producing high quality work. It's what college is like. You either do the reading or you don't. You can get your B's or C's showing up, taking your classes, and not reading a page. I'll tell you that right now. It's a shame. You can get a, what we used to call a gentleman's C just by showing up. 
when you're a lawyer, showing up ain't good enough. I know P.T. Barnum said 99, was it P.T. Barnum or Thomas Edison? One of those two guys said, 99% of, it's actually Page, sorry. Who said 99% of life is just showing up? Edison said it's it's one percent inspiration and ninety nine percent perspiration. <laughs> There's a lot of truth in that too. Um, so, you know, for really professional jobs, you have to be able to work independently, and you got to do the work. So, if you go through your college career never doing the reading, you do your papers, you take your tests, you show up for class, you learn a lot. But if you don't do the reading, you're not doing the very, very one thing that college is good at teaching you yourself how to do that will teach you to become an independent worker in a professional job. If you don't do the reading for your classes, you're cheating yourself, you're cheating the taxpayers, and you're not preparing yourself for independent work. Because it takes practice. So I would say maybe a different place. If, if you know what amnesty is about, mm -hmm. that's fine. But you're, the first three weeks are going to be slow. And you've got to hang in there and just do the clerical work for three weeks because they don't start giving you research projects. One of my um, former interns at amnesty, he hated the first four weeks and he said it was his best experience of his life the next ten weeks. Because he hung in there. And Muhammad, you know, has gone on to distinguish work. But you got to be patient at some places because they don't know who you are. You show up once a week for, most people go up twice a week, but whatever it is, you know, is eight to 10 hours a week, maybe 12 hours a week. They don't know you the first day or two. And if you have bad luck, you have a different supervisor each day. So you're sometimes often better off at a smaller shop. It's more like family and they, they need you. So they give you stuff right away to do. So that's, that's, otherwise I would say maybe International Rescue Committee or CARE, um, refugee resettlements, Catholic charities, Catholic Relief Services. The other thing I would say is instead of going overseas to play pro ball, maybe go overseas and do an overseas internship with UN volunteers or uh, with any of these NGOs and get placed in a peacekeeping mission and get that international experience that will really open your eyes. So that's something to think about after you graduate. The other thing I would say is, in terms of career, professional jobs require a master's degree. But it's a very valuable thing to do is to have a years of experience, one year of experience. <coughs> so if you can get a really good job soon after you graduate, it's well worth it to spend a year before you go to graduate school because you'll get more out of your graduate school master's program having had that work experience for a longer period of time. So that would be my advice. Okay. You speak another language? Uh, French, but. By the way, you know, if you take two or three years in college, that's enough so you will be fluent after you get there. You won't be fluent when you, when you go, but you will be fluent when you get there. Any questions for me? Uh, you, you mentioned the International Rescue Committee. Uh-huh. Did you speak The International Rescue Committee is in Clarkston. Um, you, many of you in the room may already know that Clarkston resettled refugees from war zones in the last 30 years. 
Clarkston has more foreign-born people per capita than any place on the planet. Clarkston, Georgia. Sorry. Clarkston, Georgia, right on the east side of 285. Yeah. Right near Stone Mountain. Uh, between Stone Mountain and Decatur, right? Mm -hmm. It's a s small city, about 6,000 people. So we're not talking about a lot of people. Yeah, um, and these are people from Bosnia, Sudan, Somalia, former Yugoslavia, people with shattered lives. And what you do is you work with refugee families, get adjusted to America. And that's a, a typical internship. You spend basically one afternoon a week with the family, helping them adjust. Or you can do teacher training, where the, all the refugee families come in, <coughs> and you just teach them things like, how do you look for a job? How do you study English? Where do you get your groceries? How do you open a bank account? You're working with people who are very motivated, <coughs> because this is their chance. They were living you know what, in a war. And now they've come to America, but what they don't have is their extended family. And they're in a foreign culture. And everything is strange. One of the incredible things that happened is right after 9-11, they attacked some Sudanese lost boys because they thought they were Al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. Sudanese lost boys are Christian. And they were the victims of a genocide from the north of Sudan. And that's why they were lost for 15 years walking through an Africa and no country would take them. And these are incredible success stories because it was just boys. And they, 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 almost all the janitors in this building five to 10 years ago were all Sudanese lost boys. They all finished high school. They all finished college. And now they're all professionals. Just incredibly determined. But the International Rescue Committee and other refugee resettlement agencies help them get their start. So that's what the IRC is about. If you go overseas with the IRC, you go to those war zones and you work in a refugee camp, working on cholera epidemics, working on humanitarian relief, <laughs> teaching job skills, helping the doctors get their supplies, ordering the inventory, managing the inventory, a lot of good business skills. And you're helping people in desperate situations. I think I would like. I think I would like doing something like that. I'll look more into that. Speak up, young man, please. Oh, sorry. I said. Uh, I said I like that. My fault. Uh, I said I like. That sounds interesting. I think I'll probably look more into that and get a lot more consideration before I dive into an unknown internship. But that's what. That's what I'm here for. To uh, continue to learn, professors helping, helping out with that. So. I'm going to say if you want to learn more about the Refugee uh, Family Assistance Program, I've done some work in like volunteering with them right down there on Memorial Drive, and I can put you in touch with the lady in Nashville. You know, it's some other lady, and like, I got her email and stuff like that. I'm on the website. I'm paying for it. So okay. if you want to know more about that, I can do that. All right. I appreciate that. Wants to know about. And also, I was going to say, too, also, like, don't underestimate, like, the power of going out there and doing stuff yourself and, like, putting your own work out there because it really doesn't take a lot if you just invest in yourself. A lot of times you will see profit and it'll be a pretty quick turnaround. Like I just came back to college after taking two years off. But like when I was here I pretty much finished up my film degree. So all I had to do was finish my uh, senior seminar on that and finish some classes for my minor art. And the rest is just electives. But while I was off, you know, I taught myself Photoshop, I taught myself web design, I taught myself internet marketing, I taught myself all kinds of different stuff. <coughs> And like, it's to the point, like, if you put your stuff out there and you advertise it enough, like, I really haven't done any kind of advertising for any of my stuff in about six months. 
and I still, my phone still rings, and I still get emails of people offering me money, and I still make money. So it's like, don't underestimate going out there and just trying to create your own path first. And mm -hmm. like, you know, that'll put you in perspective too if you want to come back to school, if you want to continue learning. Like, what that did is uh, I saw it to myself, like, all right, this is good, and it's a good way to like start up money and stuff like that. But I realized I wanted to come back to school, and it made me think more of whereas when I, before my college career, I didn't even want to go to college at all. I just wanted to go straight into the workforce. <coughs> and then I came back and it was just like, okay, I don't, I can see myself, even though I can sustain myself with my online businesses and everything, I still want to continue my education. So I put the idea in my head of maybe getting more than just one degree instead of just coming back and finishing my film degree. Now I'm contemplating graduate school. Now I'm contemplating getting maybe another degree in philosophy or something to do with sociology and activism and stuff like that. So. I mean, never, never underestimate the context you can get by just going putting your own stuff out there. I mean, like, it really doesn't take long to get money. You can take 40 bucks, go to Walmart, Sharpie marker, write down your name, whatever service you provide, and like in one night, just drive around 285, putting out signs on every exit, come back home, your phone be ringing. It's like once you see something at work, just keep doing it, and just keep expanding and trying to find new ways to get your stuff out there. Yeah, that's, that's true. Maybe I should work for you. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I could use your service. We'll forgive you that you root for the Steelers. I'm an immature adult. I'm an immature adult now, yeah. I took an early retirement, and uh, I want to say to you young people, save your money. Don't spend all your money. Save your money and try to find some things like this gentleman said. Find your passion. You know, something you will do for free. That's your passion. And you can make money, you know, make money in, with your passion. And uh, I um, have worked in for the fire department. I've worked in crime scene different things, but I, I said, okay, I'm tired of this, so I move on to something else, but the, the vast, this world has so much out here to offer, and then I took a year and I just traveled. Um, I just want to say, and the professor, he is so knowledgeable um, from what I've just gathered. There aren't a lot of teachers that really care about you, and clearly he I cares. hope that's not true, but thank you that's for the compliment. Up, that's not a suck up no, I know, but I mean, I think my colleagues also care. Well, I'm not all instructors do. I mean, that's just how it is. No, well, thank you for the compliment. Yeah, I mean, that's just how it is, you know. Um, so I just want to say to Well, you I want to thank Daniel because I, I had the confidence that he would be able to do this, and I think mm -hmm. this is a lot more valuable. I mean, not every class, but mm -hmm. this is kind of a pep talk, you know, to also to encourage you to do the reading. But, but more importantly, you know, think broadly about how to prepare yourself. Because in a sense, by helping yourself, you're helping everybody else. Because you contribute more if you have more skills and more motivation for what you choose in life. And you'll be happier for it. Yeah, yeah I, I gained that from uh, just the entire conversation. The other thing I would say um, that I haven't talked about is that you have to assess your only, not only your learning style, but your working style. He's a little bit shy today, but Daniel's a people person. I mean, soft-spoken, I should say. 
and I'm not saying he's a loudmouth normally, but you know, he's really articulate. He's one of the more articulate people I've ever seen in class. And we had a moot court last spring, and you really surprised me. I mean, I knew you were good, but I didn't know you were great. And you should try things that, I don't know if you've ever done a moot court before, but no, did that. you know you were that good? No, I didn't, I didn't know I was that good. <laughs> What's a moot court? It's just a simulation, a mock trial. A simulation oh, okay. court. Yeah, the moot court is the other way law schools call a fake trial or something. Anyway, um, so sometimes, you know, the, the thing about like an internship or a certain kind of class is even though it might be, a, you think it's a stretch, try something. Because if you, if you experience it, you may find that you're actually really good at it. I was always really good at math. And I always thought maybe I should go into something related to math or science. And my scores were a little higher in math and science than verbal and whatnot. But the one thing I thought that I was pretty good at, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I thought I was a pretty good talker. <laughs> and so I thought something like teaching would be something that would be a good fit for me, even though maybe in terms of pure aptitude, math <laughs> might be a better career for me. But, and maybe I made a mistake, I don't know. Because I know I'm pretty good at math. I'm not sure if I would have liked being a mathematician or a statistician. Because even though I'm good at math, I may not want to be like completely cut off from the world and just in the world of numbers. And I certainly didn't want to work for an insurance company as an actuary. So <laughs> working for one of those dreaded health insurance companies denying people their insurance. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't feel good about myself. But, you know, sometimes a little bit of luck involves you know trying out stuff. If you hear of an opportunity and nothing you considered, don't knock it off. You never know. And the other thing I would say is, you know, follow your passion, but also be realistic. You know, I can't tell you how many people I lived with in New York who wanted to be an actor or an actress. Yeah, they're following their passion, but there ain't that many jobs. And even of the people with an actor's equity card, most of them are unemployed most of the time. So, you know, make sure you know what you're getting into. Because if you're going to be an actor, it's a 99.9% .9 probability that you ain't going to be a working actor. And if you are a working actor, you're probably going to be in a road show. And that's if, you're, that's if you're really, really good. And if you're incredibly good and incredibly lucky, then you might be able to stay in one place. And if you make it, then you can be rich and unhappy. <laughs> Because most actors and actresses I know are pretty unhappy. You know who you know? Um, my next door neighbor was an actress who, who made it big time. Uh -huh. um, but anyway, and she's not unhappy, but she's had a couple of marriages, but that's pretty normal. <laughs> um, so be realistic. I mean, that means you know, if you have a chance, go for it. But if you don't have a chance, you know, it's kind of like life is not fair. You don't always get to do everything you want, but find something you really like that you can do and get an opportunity. And try to figure out what that thing is. And if it doesn't work out the first time, you, you get a second chance. But by the time you're 35, 40, you get fewer and fewer chances. It's not like it's the end. You can change careers at 50. You can change careers at 80, 70. It just becomes a whole lot harder because younger people are cheaper.
That's the simple reason. It's not that, it's not that you can't do the job, it's just, <coughs> why should I hire you when I can hire somebody for minimum wage or low wages? You got 20 years experience, if I hire you at minimum wage, I think you'll be unhappy, and I don't want an unhappy employee. Be here long. <laughs> so, you really, you, the clock hasn't started ticking yet, but it will start ticking. One other thing is that there are certain professions that they don't give you as much time off, and one of them is business. If you work for big companies, they don't have much patience for people to take a year off and work, you, uh, travel. And only I money. No, but I mean, you also did it after working a long I time. I did it after college when I got my associate uh, degree. You could do it in your yeah, 20s. By the time you're 30, yeah. here's something that is, women to have kids, they, they excuse that fine. But women or men to go travel, oh, somebody wants to find themselves. Find yourself now. Yeah. Or at least try. It's not that easy to find yourself. It's, it's really, it's almost like a job. The very fortunate few know what they want to do, they go out and do it, and they succeed. Yeah. I call them boring. <laughs> but actually, no, they're not necessarily boring. But they're often very focused in a kind of anti-open-minded kind of way. But the process of exploration and experience is, has got an upside to it, which is you get to experience things for the sake of experiencing them and you get to give something. So, yeah. more questions? Uh, more of a comment. I think that's what I'm gonna do. I think I'm gonna just use this time right now and travel and see and, and, ex and explore that side because uh, I don't know, before I had wife and kids, you know, when I had real responsibilities, I wanna do that right now before I have to take care of those, those right. issues yeah. and those things. That's a good idea. Um, but I know I'll be, I'm gonna be fine. I'm gonna be all right. I just keep God first, man. Keep moving, keep doing, doing everything right, and I end up the right way. So I'm gonna be straight either way. But it's always good to have this conversation. And, uh, well, I have a lot of confidence in you, and I think it's gonna everything you say is gonna come true. Yeah. But it also, it's because I know you're going about it in the right way. Yeah. <coughs> it takes a long time, but it only takes one. Yeah. So, anyone have any more con questions for Daniel? Let's give him a big round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Was that, I, I, we have a few more minutes, right? Oh, you can stay for the end if you want. Right? Yeah, I'll stay for the end. You don't have to. No, that's cool. Okay. You have time. Okay, well, we have about 15 minutes. So we have two alternatives. One thing is to go to the reading. But I thought with Egypt being so topical, maybe we should just talk about Egypt for 15 minutes, and then I'll catch up on the reading next week. Okay, here, here's a few things to think about. First of all, I would urge you all to do two things. Is just try to follow it the best you can. But if you really want to follow it closely, go to a website in Arabic. Google Arab newspapers. And when you see the Arabic script, open up the browser and Google Chrome. You know what Google Chrome is? It's a browser made by Google. Install it on your computer, then click Translate, and you'll get an instantaneous translation into English. Chrome, C-H-R-O-M-E. And see how the world, especially the Arab world, is viewing what's going on in Egypt. 
because even if you watch Al Jazeera in English, which is somewhat like BBC, somewhat like Algeria, uh, Al Jazeera, sorry, uh, they're still just interviewing English speakers, which is the educated elite, upper middle class Egyptians and others. It's not the Arab street, it's not the Egyptian street, it's not, the question is, you know, if you're gonna have a revolution or a real transformation of the Mubarak system control of society, it's gonna have to be a multi-class rebellion of rich and poor, educated, not so educated, of people coming together. Second, it's gotta be not just a rebellion against Mubarak, the president of uh, Egypt, it's got to be also a multi-class coalition for something in common. And the problem with being just against Mubarak is as soon as they get rid of Mubarak, and he's going to go sooner or later, is that they won't have anything to unite them again. Who's that? Just like against Saddam, there wasn't anything to fight for. Right. just against Saddam. In fact, if we'd let... The Iraqis tried to overthrow Saddam. Then these different ethnic groups would have had to work together, plot together, and then develop some relationships and have power sharing once they get into office. Instead, we got rid of them, and they said, OK, everybody get along. But under Saddam, <laughs> the Sunnis uh, oppressed the Shia and the Kurds and a few other minorities. And so the Shia were the majority, or near at least the plurality, and they wanted to get even. And the only type of force they understood in Saddam was the force of guns. So that's what they used because they had no experience talking to the other side. Same problem exists in Egypt. The opposition has been repressed so long by Mubarak, serving us as one of their client states. And uh, there's been no dialogue. It's only been repression, putting the Muslim Brotherhood and a few other weak opposition groups who once upon a time were for violence and now are not for, for violence, but basically may resort to violence because there's so much interpersonal hatred and antipathy and distrust because everybody's related to everybody on the basis of force of arms. Now, what's going to happen? Hard to predict the future. Why? Because there's so many factors at play. But here's a couple of ways to think about it. And we discussed some of this when we talked about Iran last time. <coughs> As a client state of the United States, basically we've given $3 billion a year, $2 billion, as much as $2 billion per year to the army to keep political stability, which is another way of saying make sure no Muslim terrorists get into positions of authority. Lock them up if necessary, but try to avoid doing that. Um, that system is still in place even when Mubarak goes. In other words, it's Mubarak without Mubarak. You still have the very strong army with intelligence agencies, infiltrators, spies, and political repression, including assassination, but typically just putting people in prison and torturing them to find out who their colleagues are in order to t torture them so that, until they've tortured everybody. That's a system that has created no space for opposition, meaningful elections, or even political protest until now. They've got political protests because there's so many people out on the streets willing to be courageous, partly because they are courageous, but also partly because the US is given the order and the army is given the order, not 
to mass murder protesters, which means that people are more bold to go out on the street and protest. Now, they can protest to their blue in the face, like we talked last time about why the protests disappeared in Iran, but they may not ever get a change in government. If they get rid of Mubarak, the question is, will that be enough? They'll also be, the formula will be free elections. They never had any free elections. They all were unfree because the opposition could never organize because half the opposition was in prison. And they had electoral fraud. Probably in a presidential election, it would be relatively free and fair six months from now. Let's say when Mubarak agrees to either leave power in six months in September or whatever the date is he said, or they remove him now or in the next week or two and then they schedule elections, but then they still have to prepare for elections, and the UN or somebody will manage them. But remember that this is a presidential system, so you also have legislative elections. And a presidential election is the most important to the United States because that's the leader we deal business with. But in terms of developing democracy, the legislative elections have to be free and fair. And that means they don't go around murdering each other, and they don't go stealing money to run elections and bribing and intimidating too. So most probably you'll have a relatively credible presidential election, and the next leader will have a mandate to rule, but the legislature will be full of bandits and crooks. Yeah. What kind of legislative elections do they have? Like, is it a plurality, plurality, or is it like a congressional representation? I think it's an English post-colony, post and therefore I think it's single-member districts in the Westminster system which is first past the post, which means that you only need a plurality to win, but the, you typically get a majority. But if uh, you have three or four candidates, you may win with only a plurality. That system gives a bonus, so that typically the majority party has an extra set of seats because they can, if you get 34% in the three candidates and you win, even though you only have 34%, you win all the seats. Um, proportional representation is typically in all other post colonies, but as a former British colony, most of the parliaments have been single member districts. I actually don't know as a fact whether, I don't know Egypt's politics that well, but almost all the other English post colonies, United States, Canada, Australia, Nigeria, Pakistan, India, all have single member districts like we have. So they only have one round. But that tends to generate over time a two-party system because voters don't want to waste their vote on a third party that doesn't have a chance. So because we have single-member districts in the United States, it's almost impossible to have a three-party system. We have third-party candidates, but typically when those third parties win, and they very rarely ever win, such as uh, Woodrow Wilson in 1912, the most famous was Lincoln, uh, Lincoln's third party, the Republican Party, became the second party, and the Whigs went out of business. Because voters don't want to waste their vote on a candidate that's going to finish in third or fourth place. So those former two, one of the two parties, or the third parties that run and then disappear, uh, don't last. Only two typically <coughs> last. The biggest party in Egypt is the Muslim Brotherhood, which has been repressed and put in prison for 35 years. Originally they were violent, now they're not. They've renounced violence, but whether they really mean it or not is one of the big questions. <coughs> the number two in Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden's right-hand man, is an Egyptian former member of the Muslim Brotherhood. But most of the uh, 
people in Al-Qaeda no, are not Muslim Brotherhood. They're mostly Yemenis and Saudis. And most of the people in the Muslim Brotherhood are not as radical as Al-Qaeda. And I think, at least the hope is, that the reason that Egypt has no center parties, centrist moderate parties, is because of repression, not because basically you have a very polarized political system of Islamic fundamentalists and pro-army people. My guess is what would happen if I just had to purely guess, and this is not based on any expertise, but just sort of general experience, is that there'll be two parties, Muslim Brotherhood and a party created by the army. And the army will signal to the voters, vote for the army party, or it'll be very difficult for the Muslim Brotherhood to govern. And they will probably do some nasty things during that election. And they'll probably try to rig the election if they can. But it's hard to rig a presidential election because there are only two candidates. Um, I don't know if you know or not, but I know a lot of, um, you said that a lot of the Muslim Brotherhood have been put into prison. And I know a lot of prisoners have been released in <coughs> protests. My best friend is actually in Egypt right now, and she's been telling me what's going on. And she said, like, uh, 3,000, more than 3,000 prisoners have just been released. Um, released by the government, or they escaped? Yeah. They're reporting polls. Yeah. She says, like, for like two days, she, didn't, she had no idea where the police were, and no one did. And were they political prisoners, or were they criminals? Were they arrested for their political views or were they arrested for crimes? I Real crimes. It's possible that the regime released criminals in order to increase the crime rate to scare people. Which actually did happen because they took a lot of, they went to a lot of hospitals and did a lot of looting. Not in all, they threatened a lot of The people from prison or just in general? Both, I think. I know a lot of people got let out and then a lot of hospitals and stuff were targeted. And a lot of thugs went around my friend's city, which was one of those upper class wealthier cities, because of the status. Well, as you know, I had a conference in Haiti, so I'm two days behind. Um, and I, I'm not a Middle East spec expert, but uh, my sense is that the most likely scenario is a change of government, but not a change of regime. Three types of regime, authoritarianism, democracy, and totalitarianism. Totalitarianism is fascism or communism, typically. And the most likely result will be another type of authoritarian system, not as brutal. The elections will be somewhat credible, but the, the, the army will still be in charge. The secret police will still be infiltrating. They'll still lock up anyone who smacks of al-Qaeda or radical, violent Islam. The United States government will intelligence agencies will be trying to create moderate alternatives to either an army-based candidacy or especially Islamic fundamentalist candidacy. Why? Because they think that if the Islamic parties win, as they, Hamas did in Palestine and Hezbollah did in Lebanon, that you will get anti-democratic <laughs> parties elected democratically. I know that sounds like a paradox, but uh, if United States was really democratic, you could argue that we would have recognized both Hamas and Hezbollah in Lebanon and Palestine as the legitimate rulers of those countries. But we said, <coughs> we don't recognize victories by parties that are not democratic. If you're cynical, you'll say that don't support our foreign policy agenda. But if you're not, 
you say it's because they have terrorists within their ranks. And they do. The other dilemma that faces the United States is that if the elections don't go as badly as they did in Palestine and Lebanon, where you get terrorist groups who run in elections and win, and instead you get some Muslim Brotherhood candidates win, some army-backed candidates win, and some other rich people win, you just don't have a consensus on where to go, which means that you don't have a majority of the legislature supporting a budget or a set of policies, and so you get sustained crises where the government can't pass bills, and therefore they have to resort to authoritarian rule by decree and force instead of by the rule of law and maj limited majority of rule. Of course, that happens in a lot of places in the first couple of years of trying democracy because most new democracies don't have a constitution that everyone agrees to support and with a common understanding of what it means. So another likely scenario is that they're going to spend a lot of time quarreling about what should be in the constitution and what the constitution means. And after many decades of harsh authoritarian rule, what the Constitution says on paper and what people understand it to mean are two different things. So it's a very difficult governing situation, even in the best scenario, which is a peaceful transfer of power, moderates coming to the fore, trying to rule a society that's dirt poor with no consensus on where to go from A to B, even on the rules to make rules. But the good news is that every country that's made it peacefully has stuck with the program and doesn't decide the first week, oh, we can't get an agreement, therefore we're doomed. And I think it takes a fairly strong measure of realism to say this is a very long road. It's a process that you learn by doing. And if everybody would be a little bit patient and the military and the opposition don't resort to violence, you let the people try to work it out nonviolently, they'll find a way. It's a five to 10 year process just to get the story going. And if people are a little bit patient and don't panic, and you don't have saboteurs or provocateurs ruin the whole thing by provoking or using violence, Egypt can make it. There are two very good democracies that are Muslim countries, Turkey and Indonesia. And nobody said either could become democratic. The world is waiting for its first Arab democracy, and Egypt has a chance of making it. But you really have to hope moderates will lead the way, and the rest will not resort to violence. And that's a tall order, I'm afraid. All right, we'll see you next time.